GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. And I'm Dr. Mikhail Kogan, Associate Program Director of the GW Department of Medicine Integrative Geriatrics Fellowship, Director of the Integrative Medicine Track Program at GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences, and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, Administrative Director of the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. Today's guest is Dr. Donald Abrams, one of the world's leading clinical researchers on medical cannabis. An integrative oncologist and professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, Dr. Abrams has conducted a number of studies on medical cannabis that were sponsored by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and other private and federal agencies. Dr. Abrams is also a member of the committee that authored the 2017 National Academy of Science report titled The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, the Current State of Evidence and Recommendations for Research. The report is one of the most comprehensive studies of research on the health effects of recreational and therapeutic cannabis use. It offers a rigorous review of scientific research published since 1999 about the health impacts of cannabis and cannabis-derived products, ranging from therapeutic effects to risks of certain cancers, diseases, mental health disorders, and injuries. Donald, you've been uh, my <laughs> outmost mentor for a number of years, and I'm so, so excited to uh, have this short conversation with you today. It's a pleasure to be here, yeah. And, um, you know, so let's start with you've been on the research forefront of this field for many years. And um, before we go to the 2017 National Academy of Science report, what's your recent current research projects and what excites you the most about your own research in the field? Uh, in the field, we're talking about cannabis, I presume. And the last study that I did... We're in the process of analyzing at this point in time. This was a study looking at the addition of vaporized cannabis uh, to the analgesics that patients with sickle cell disease were taking uh, for their uh, acute and chronic pain. And for me, the exciting thing about this study was that it's the first time that anybody has actually studied a cannabis blend that was both THC and CBD or cannabidiol. Most of the work has been done with NIDA cannabis from the National Institute on Drug Abuse that is purely Delta 9 THC, the main psychoactive component. But as you know, cannabidiol or CBD has gotten a lot of press as being non-psychoactive, analgesic, and anti-inflammatory. So our study in 23 patients with sickle cell uh, assign them to inhale vaporized CBD THC cannabis for five days in our clinical research center or to inhale placebo for five days and each patient uh, experienced both. So we're in the process of analyzing that at this point in time. I have no results to report, but it was an exciting study. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, you know, for me as a geriatrician, I have a lot of people in their 80s and 90s, and so using um, products that has mostly CBD that are much less or not psychoactive is, is very advantageous, especially if we can show a very specific, concrete research-supported evidence. So, um, 
you know, the, the report, I, I went through the report several times. It's a, definitely a, a super comprehensive, and I don't expect any of our listeners to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's, it's, it's long. But, um, you know, I find it pretty shocking that the re- certain grades of recommendations, like for chronic pain, and I'm sure you're going to tell us in a, uh, uh, shortly more details, but I find that the certain recommendations are really strong. I mean, the, for chronic pains and for nausea, they were pretty much uh, a, a very uniform, strong recommendation. So can you elaborate? I mean, if we saying that the mm-hmm. cannabis has a strong evidence, but we still have it as a Schedule One controlled substance, how do we talk about it? Well, that's a great point. So, you know, the work that the committee did over six months was... Uh, to analyze about 10,000 published abstracts in the medical literature on the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. And I think that's important to point out because most of the positive health effects for therapeutic benefit have come from studying the pharmaceutically approved compounds, dronabinol and nabilone. Very little research to date has actually looked at inhaled cannabis as a therapeutic agent. And that's largely because of the fact that the only legal source of cannabis for doing research in this country is NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And NIDA has a congressional mandate that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So whereas hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent looking at the potential harmful effects of people who use cannabis recreationally, very few studies are out there which look at the potential therapeutic effects of cannabis inhaled for medical purposes. So what we did was look at those small number of studies, and again, many of them were looking at the pharmaceutical products as opposed to the plant, and we graded the evidence, uh, the strength of the evidence, conclusive, substantial, moderate, limited or no evidence. And we did find, as you say, that there was conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis or cannabinoids are effective for the treatment of chronic pain as antiemetics and for improving patient-reported spasticity and multiple sclerosis. Again, for most of these studies, the benefits were found for the pharmaceutical products, dronabinol or nabilone. Interesting to note that the process that we use, meta-analysis or systematic reviews, has also subsequently uh, been used by a report put out by Veterans Administration's investigators who looked at pretty much the same pain papers that we did and came up with a much less conclusive and substantial enthusiasm for cannabis as a pain medicine. So that's one of the issues here that you know, even though we're all doing the same analyses of the same papers, different people, I guess, must inject unconscious biases because we are all supposed to enter these processes with open minds and leave our biases at the door. Yeah, just for our listeners, I think it's important to know that the national VA system does not allow for any provider inside a VA to recommend cannabis. And um, it's unclear if that will change anytime soon unless we change the schedule of the cannabis from schedule one to another level or deschedule it completely. 
Right, but so, your point, your point though, Misha, about why is it still Schedule One when the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine claims that it has medicinal use? Because the definition of Schedule One is mm -hmm. no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. And even in 1999, the last time the Institute of Medicine uh, did an analysis, marijuana as medicine, they also concluded that cannabis had medicinal benefit. And in fact, going way back to 1942, when cannabis was removed from the U.S. pharmacopoeia, uh, the LaGuardia Commission very shortly thereafter came to the same conclusion that it was medicinal and it should be available for patients. But unfortunately, this decision is made by the Department of Justice and not by anyone who has any medical knowledge or information. Yep, sounds like a continuation of separation mm -hmm. of politics and science in, in our <laughs> current political environment. We'll uh, move on <laughs> on that note. Um, so, you know, as a, as a prescriber, since I've been using cannabis um, since the beginning of the program in D.C., I definitely find that most of my patients and forget the efficacy research for a second, really prefer a plant-based products rather than prescription cannabinoids. And, you know, I'm not even talking about the cost of uh, prescription cannabinoids. Some of them uh, could be very expensive if insurance doesn't cover. We're talking about thousands of dollars. But if mm. insurance does cover, it's still quite often that patients tend to prefer plant plants product mostly because they're either more efficacious or they give lesser side effects or that they have a more control over the dosing. Right. Um, you know, and I so I often find myself uh, kind of discussing it with them with uh, realizing quickly that they're really interested more in a plant-based. And then when you forced in the <clears throat> conversations like this with your own patients, do you, how do you navigate this? Do you give them a choice? Do you simply say, you know, well, like, do you give them your own opinion or how do you handle that? Um, I actually have not uh, prescribed uh, dronabinol since, I would say, 1992. So, I mean, I'm in San Francisco, California, and we approved medicinal cannabis in 1996. So, you know, for 22 years now, I've been recommending patients use cannabis. You said prescribe. We cannot actually, as you know, prescribe right, cannabis. Right. We can only recommend it. So, right. you know, I, uh, you know, very rarely would I think to suggest just the single isolated molecule of Delta-9 THC. Uh, you know, cannabis is what led me to pursue my fellowship in integrative medicine. And during my training uh, to learn about integrative medicine, I was very attractive to traditional Chinese medicine. Traditional Chinese medicine has been using whole plants in concoctions as medicine for thousands of years, and, and they believe that the plant, the whole plant and all the chemicals present in the plant provide the yin and yang, if you will, to balance out the uh, negative effects of the single most psychoactive component and mm -hmm. augment some of the beneficial effects. So. When you take Delta-9 THC out of the background supportive stroma of the 400 other compounds in the plant, that's a different medicine than when you get it in the plant. So that uh, that's been my preference to 
recommend that patients consume the plant product. Now, how they consume it, do they eat it, do they inhale it, is it THC, is it CBD, is it some magic ratio of the two, uh, you know, that's sort of individually dependent on patient preference, I think. It's so interesting that, you know, I've started uh, using the, the, well, both cannabis and uh, um, medications, the Dronabinol, uh, a lot later than you, but I very quickly came to almost exactly the same conclusion, even way before I met you. Uh-huh. And, you know, and well, what's interesting is that, you know, my first year of practice, I think I told you this story, I had a patient who almost uh, died from side effects of Marinol. It was a very elderly man, and he was in the hospital, and he basically uh, developed an acute delirium or change in mental status. Uh-huh. And it took us quite quite a couple hours to figure out what was going on, and thank God we did figure it out. But since, you know, and we don't really see this type of problems with the use of cannabis, so I think just to kind of reinforce what you said and also add to that the pharmaceuticals, when we isolate them, seem to not Maybe they increase efficacy, that's possible, but they also seem to increase risk of side effects. Right. Substantially. Yeah. So, you know, so we have an interesting situation here. So you have, you have foremost experts uh, who contributed to, uh, to this major scientific uh, data saying, yes, we, we did this analysis and it looks like the prescription cannabinoids are effective, but we really have not enough data for the actual plant-based. And yet... We're also saying at the same time that we believe that the plant extracts are actually appears to be more efficacious and safer. So how do we go forward? (laughs) You're doing all this research to the extent that you do. You know, I've tried to do some small projects. We're all trying, and it seems like we're poking along rather slow. So give us some sense as to what do you think going forward, uh, the sort of a major research attempts that should be made um, either through the political ways or through other means, private sector? Yeah. So we ended our report from the National Academies uh, by making some recommendations, four recommendations, and basically they were all directed at just what you're talking about. You know, what, uh, what do we need to do? And we said we need to address the research gaps to develop a comprehensive evidence base on the short and long-term health effects of cannabis use, both beneficial and harmful. We need to improve research quality, and we need to improve surveillance capacity. That is, so we can figure out how much cannabis use there is and how much cannabis use there isn't. And then, you know, basically, we want the government to take some responsibility for establishing some guidelines to figure out how to best investigate cannabis. Now, you know, the more I do this, I've been doing this now for 21 years, it it sort of becomes like more daunting because I was called to South Africa to be an expert witness in a case to make cannabis available as a medicine uh, for the people of South Africa. And in fact, the other side stalled for the four days that I was there uh, and they didn't allow me to take the witness stand. Wow. But, but while I was there, I was able to read the testimony of the expert witness for the other side who claimed that cannabis is not a medicine because it hasn't been studied in phase one, two, and three clinical trials or subjected to phase four surveillance and that it's not standardized. And, you know, all of those concerns and complaints 
are actually true. So I think what the problem is we're trying to pharmaceuticalize, if I can make up that word, mm-hmm. a botanical remedy. You know, it is maybe it isn't a medicine. Maybe it is a botanical therapy, you know, and we're probably not going to be able to study the hundreds of thousands of species of the plant with their varying concentrations of THC and CBD in phase one, two, three, you know, clinical trials. So how do we gather information? I think we always say in oncology that the plural of anecdote is not evidence. And we don't accept anecdotal information. But I will tell you, over my 35 years of being a practicing oncologist, that cannabis is very useful for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, although there are no clinical trials out there that that confirm my impression. But it just is, you know. And again, the plural of anecdote is not evidence, so I really should slap myself for saying that, but <laughs> that's the truth. But what we're trying to do right now... Uh, I'm a member of a practice-based research network in integrative medicine, and three of our sites in San Francisco, San Diego, and Chicago are launching a pilot study to try to collect information from patients in our clinics and patients in three uh, corresponding local dispensaries from people that are using CBD-dominant strains of cannabis to find out, number one, what they're using, Number two, how they're using it. And number three, does it work and for what? And we're doing that, you know, we're not prescribing it. We're not doing a placebo-controlled trial. We're doing a one-time red cap-based, you know, survey so that the data that the patients put in from their own home, uh, you know, computer will be analyzed in aggregate uh, anonymously and we'll see if we can learn something about CBD, which is catapulted to the level of miracle drug without any evidence whatsoever in the literature supporting that. Right, right. Um, <laughs> what do you draw from the Israeli experience? Because the Israel nation, as a whole nation has uh, set up the medical cannabis use quite a while ago. My understanding is that their use is very different. There's a lot of specific restrictions and they, they have very little extracts, most of their products are whole flour, but they have done a lot of research, especially in the area of uh, just looking at the palliation of certain symptoms, including in oncology and in other spheres. So, you know, if the whole country figured out how to do research on the more centralized um, platform, what can we draw from their experience, you think? Well, you know, I think I, 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 st- I still haven't been there myself to see Every time they invite me to come to a meeting, I, I say, you know what? I'm too old to fly in coach from San Francisco to Tel Aviv, and that seems to end the conversation. But I think I might be going in October uh, for a visit, and hopefully I'll see a little bit more firsthand uh, as to what's going on. But, uh, you know, they get a lot of credit, and there have been some publications coming out that I think are pretty impressive, but again, they're observational, which is Mm -hmm. what I just said we need to do. I mean, their ability to do randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials is, I don't think, any better than anybody else's. I 
particularly there is a investigator at the Hadassah University that had in clinicaltrials.gov a listing for a study that he wanted to do looking at cannabidiol in patients with recurrent cancers and he wanted a target sample size of 60 mm-hmm. and you know after the trial was said to have completed there was no information on it so i sent him an email and he told me that he only enrolled four patients three with glioblastoma multiforme and one with another recurrent malignancy and it didn't work for any of them and he couldn't enroll patients so he just terminated the study Hmm. So again, you know, I think they're doing, because they have this system where all the patients get licenses and they're asked to complete surveys, I think they do have the opportunity to provide us with some useful observational data. As you said, in cancer patients at the uh, International Association for Cannabinoid Medicine Conference that was held uh, in uh, Germany, in Cologne uh, last October, Uh, the Israelis had three of the uh, plenary sessions, one on cancer, one on geriatrics, which you would be interested in, and one on inflammatory bowel disease. And again, uh, these are largely observational. I believe the the inflammatory bowel disease might have been a prospective interventional trial. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think they're doing good work, uh, but we need more good work either from them or from other people as well. So uh, this was wonderful. So let's try to switch a little bit towards more clinical because I'm I'm thinking that some of our listeners uh, could be patients or they just could have a more practical clinical questions. So uh, my first question, you know, there's this there's this myriad of different strains and different ways to administer it, and it almost looks like in multiple uh, consultations that I do, a lot of the patients will often call back and say, you know what, I think I'm even more confused now than I was before I came to see you. And so I'd say, oops, I'm so sorry, so let's talk more. But the problem here appears to be that there's a total lack of nomenclature of strains. And it's, it's just, it's, you know, when we prescribe medications, it's pretty straightforward. We give a strength, we give right. the, the, the frequency. Here, you know, forget the fact that in D.C. I'm not even allowed to tell the patients exactly what strain to get because that's how they set up the legal system. But, you know, just even in general, it seems to be with with lack of a single kind of language around this. How do we guide our our patients uh, to the best possible treatment for them? You know, it's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. And. You know, I don't have an answer for that. What I do is I tell my patients, go to the dispensary and tell them what you have and what we're trying to treat. And they're the people truly on the front lines. And they deal with other patients who have similar concerns and complaints. And they know better, number one, what they have in that dispensary. And number two, what might work. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a consultant to a group in Maui, and Maui, uh, they have, before you get to the to the bud tender, as it was, the person who supplies you with the flowers, <laughs> they have three patient education specialists, three women that you can sort of, when you walk in the door, corner one of them and, and have a conversation with them about what you have and ask them 
what they would recommend that you purchase. So it's a little bit of a different, you know, where they get their data from, I don't know. I think it's, again, just the personal experience of watching and having, you know, an experience that you and I don't get to have because, you know, I don't really know what my patients get at mm-hmm. the dispensary and I don't really know how they use it. And, you know, they tell me it works, but it's a black box between, you know, that and my writing them a recommendation letter to go to the dispensary. Yeah, so I think that's part of the general problem why we have so few physicians who are comfortable in recommending because, you know, it's really hard for us healthcare professionals to sort of just give up this sense of control and say, go over there and they'll tell you what to do. You know, when we write the prescription for drugs, we send them straight to the pharmacist and we know exactly what's going to happen. And here it's kind of, as you said, black box. And yet, I think we're all doing this, seeing that the patients like it, and they often come back to us and say, this is the best thing that ever happened to me, especially when there's a lot of hard-to-treat symptoms like nausea and pain. So what's your kind of, you know, if if you have a a physician um, who is new to this or just entering the field and doesn't know how to think about this, what what would be your best recommendation to to such a person? Well... Again, you know, if they, you know, the as far as dosing, we always tell patients start low and go slow, even mm-hmm. though it should be go slowly. But you know, it start low, go slow is a better sort of acronym or you know slogan. So you know, tell the patient to. Well, first of all, we have to talk about routes of ingestion, and there's a big difference between inhalation and taking by mouth ingestion. Because when you inhale, the peak plasma concentration occurs in two and a half minutes. And when you take it by mouth, it's two and a half hours. And when you take it by mouth, the Delta-9 THC, the main psychoactive component, goes through the liver and gets metabolized on first pass to an even more psychoactive 11-hydroxy metabolite. So that's why people who are taking edible products or the, the pharmaceuticals tend to get a little bit more zonked and tend to have a little bit less control over the onset, the depth, and the duration of the effect. Because when you inhale it, the peak plasma concentration occurs in two and a half minutes instead of two and a half hours and then dissipates quite rapidly. And because you're inhaling it, less is going through the liver. And so you have less of that secondary psychoactive metabolite form. Now, a lot of our patients are using tinctures or oils, which they put under their tongue. And we know from the pharmaceutically available sublingual spray, uh, nabiximols, which is available as a medicine in Canada and the European Union, that the pharmacokinetics of sublingual cannabis is probably halfway between inhaled and ingested. So, Mm -hmm. again, the route of administration is different. Do you recommend a patient use THC or CBD? You know, we live in a euphorophobic society where we think (laughs) being high is bad for you. And it's not necessarily, especially if you have a terminal illness or cancer. Uh, So I'm not sure that, that, that this tendency to want to embrace CBD cannabidiol because it's not psychoactive is really warranted. But... For people that don't want to be high at all, 
then you would use a CBD dominant product as opposed to THC. Now, the issue is that THC complexes with our so-called cannabinoid receptor, which is highly concentrated in the brain, but also present throughout the rest of the body. CBD actually doesn't complex with the receptor, so it's not an agonist. So how it works is still a little bit mysterious. Uh, CBD probably, when taken with THC, uh, decreases some of the psychoactivity. So, you know, patients are seeking all these different ratio products, two to one, eight to one, 18 to one. And, you know, it's a question that I get asked constantly by my patients is, what is the best ratio for nausea or what's the best ratio for pain? There's no answer to the question. I mean, nobody knows. It mm -hmm. hasn't been hasn't been studied. So, so, so I, don't I know. think yeah. I think we are we probably need to wrap up soon. So I have <laughs> um, kind of a a final direction here. So it appears that there are possibility of some new clinical directions with cannabis and uh, you know my personal interest as you of course know is more into neurodegenerative diseases parkinson's and alzheimer's uh -huh. there are small very small trials um, suggestive of some possible benefits we don't really know that for fact but definitely appears like especially considering that both conditions really don't have a cure that this may be something that needs to be researched any further. So that's for me. But for you, what, what's in terms of the clinical applications? What are the new um, or just most exciting directions that you see uh, going to be taken in the next decade or so? Oy, that I don't have a crystal ball, and you know, <laughs> it's you know, it's uh, it really depends. I mean, you know, my concern is that as more states uh, allow recreational use, that the dispensaries that are providing medicinal cannabis are going to mm -hmm. go a little more lax and not be as conscious and as careful as they are, uh, you know, providing high quality products that we know a little bit about to patients with uh, medical needs. Uh, you know, are people going to jump up and say, oh, I want to study cannabis for this condition or that condition? It's not easy to do, especially yeah. while it remains schedule one. And while there are so many different strains of it and all of the complications about trying to do research with a plant that is schedule one. So, you know, I would hope maybe observational data uh, would be uh, increasing as more practice based research networks, for example, start to try to collect information about what's going on with their patients and their practices who are using cannabis. I do think that there is some potential that we may be able to see people getting off of opiates or at least decreasing their opiate dosages by using cannabis concomitantly or instead of these much more addictive and uh, dangerous medications that we've so freely prescribed. So that and that that topic seems to be uh, of a huge importance since we have such a massive abuse of medications and a very high mortality from not just the illegal heroin but also from you know legally prescribed opiates. Well, Donald, it's it's such a pleasure always talking to you. Um, I hope I'll see you soon and. Um, I think you've contributed so much to this field, um, and thank you so much for taking 
time to talk to us and update us on the current state of scientific evidence and research on the health effects of medical cannabis. My pleasure. You're listening to the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with GW's Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. For more information, please visit smhs.gwu.edu backslash OIMH. And this is Dr. Mikhail Kogan. And Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.